0: Coming up this hour, will masks become a national mandate? Who are the most generous people in the church? And then Dr. Josh Moody, senior pastor of College Church in Wheaton, is going to join us. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Friday and welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Uh, Just remember, find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, You can find us online, 1160hope.com and get our podcast wherever it is. you Get your podcast, subscribe, rate and review. Uh, And, Ian, usually we've been talking over the last five months like you can't tell what day it is. But some reason today feels like a Friday. I got to be honest. I'm excited that it's Friday. That's
1: also National Creamsicle Day. So maybe that's why maybe that's why you're feeling that way, Brian. I love a good creamsicle. Of course, yes, of course yes. you do. That's are you pro? It's perfectly cre- with your brand. Are you pro? It's actually true. Are you pro creamsicle Is The question. I don't think I've had a creamsicle since I was six. So I don't. I don't know that I can remember. Gosh, if you
0: offered me one right now, Becky, like, yes, please. While you're eating your avocado and and soft cookies, I will have the creamsicle. So there so we you go. say
1: soft cookies like it's an insult. Like like this Joker <laughs> over here likes moist cookies, Ugh. what a loser. <laughs> Can you believe this guy? <laughs> the audacity. Uh,
0: well, there's no, there's no telling where today's going to go. Cause it is a Friday. We're excited to be together. And, uh, hopefully this will be a good two hours that you spend with us before heading off on your weekend. Ian, I wanted to share with you maybe the weirdest tweet that I saw. And now there've been newspaper articles written about it. Uh, I don't even know the point I'm trying to make, although I just want to know, did you see this, that there was a tweet uh, attacking Democrats and particularly the choice of Kamala Harris uh, coming from the account of Herman Cain. You might ask, why is that odd? Uh, Because he died two weeks ago. Uh And uh, did you see this? And it kind of tells you everything you need to know a lot about a lot of kind of celebrity and
1: politicians Twitter accounts, doesn't it? I, I mean, I don't think it tells me everything I need to know, no. <laughs> a lot that you need to know. <laughs> it is always interesting. I mean, there's other accounts that I follow. Like, I saw a tweet from the C.S. Lewis account yesterday, and it was a retweet of something. It said, oh, man, we love this. Or, no, I love this book. And I I, I remember reading that thinking, it's strange to read that, like, in first person, like, as if that's actually C.S. Lewis tweeting about some book that just came out. But we, th- I mean, we talked even months ago about... I remember a software being developed, gosh, maybe 15 years ago where you could you could subscribe to this service that after you pass, the service will, like, analyze the algorithms of your previous posts and continue to tweet and post on your behalf. And no way. Yeah, that's, like, a real thing, and it's not even that <laughs> new. So I'm sure that's not what's going on here. I'm sure there's a whole team of people that are, you know, managing the account. But, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely strange. I'll, it's say. Strange. I'll give you that.
0: There's no other real point to it. They did kind of clarify later that, I don't know, the clarification was somewhat funny because they're like, no, we're we're tweeting for uh, Herman Cain. really? You think so? <laughs> but yeah. they said, we're going to, and they changed the name of it. But for some reason, I, I was surprised they didn't feel the need on the front end to explain themselves, but uh, it will keep being tweeted from, but by his people. So that was interesting. And what I wanted to spend most of our time in this first part with Uh, was something that Joe Biden said and uh, Kamala Harris yesterday when they were together. Uh, It says Joe Biden and his newly selected running mate, Senator Kamala Harris of California, called on Thursday for Americans to be required to wear masks, offering one of the first glimpses at how the Democratic ticket plans to confront the coronavirus and draw a contrast with President Trump. Mr. Biden addressing reporters after receiving a briefing from public health experts said every American should wear a mask while outside for at least the next three months and that all governors should mandate mask wearing. He went on to say, it's not about your rights. It's about your responsibilities as an American. When I first read this, obviously, it feels like daily we talk about masks. I think that they're important towards us getting past the coronavirus. But when I first read this, I said, well, This is going to be this is going to be quite the debated topic. And what's going to happen if he wins and tries to tell the country to wear masks? I think uh, this is about to get interesting. What did you think when you saw what Biden put out there for, hey, if I get elected, here's what I think should happen to combat the coronavirus?
1: Well, I don't think it's going to become a debated topic. I think that it it already is like this is I I posted an article from uh, from Fox News yesterday and the headline read. Wisconsin state agency tells employees to wear masks during zoom calls, even if at home alone. I saw uh, that. So people started weighing in on that, obviously, and people had uh, really strong opinions. I will say this though. Uh, Lauren Miranda weighed in. She says it's actually best not to assume anything when seeing someone in a car alone, wearing a mask, as we cannot know the circumstances. It's very possible. They're going from one location where they need to wear a mask to another. It is advised to touch the mask as little as possible. So if someone is going a short distance, It is best to keep the mask on and remove it once the mask will not need to be put back on. This reduces the risk of touch contamination. I thought that was an interesting point, you know, because obviously a lot of people are weighing in. They're like, I don't get it. That doesn't seem right. So I'm helpful for some of those counter perspectives, even if sometimes the headlines can be a little inflammatory. I'm not surprised by what Biden said. I think it is going to it it is going to show we've seen sort of a, a tasting, a trial run almost of how complicated this topic already is how inflammatory right. it can be. And uh, I don't see any signs of of the heat turning the opposite direction in the coming months, to be no. honest.
0: No, I mean, we did that story, I think, just yesterday or two days ago about the the sheriff in Florida saying you can't wear a mask right. in my office. Right. Like, I think it's just getting higher and higher. Uh, president Trump weighed in. He said, if the president has the unilateral power to order every single citizen to cover their face in nearly all instances, what other powers does he have uh, and so you could see the battle being set here, uh, although it is interesting politics. Oftentimes the politicians looking to see where public opinion is. It says the virus contained uh, continues to loom over President Trump as a major political liability. Fifty seven percent of Americans said the president's doing a bad job with the virus. Fifty two percent said the United States was response is worse than other countries. And in Wisconsin, an important battleground state, uh, 69 percent of voters said people should be required to wear masks in all public uh, places. And also they found that same support in battleground states like Florida and Texas. I'm picturing. Can you picture the first debate, which has to be sometime relatively soon, next month or two, maybe? Yeah. what are the chances that that first debate they get on the stage and, and Joe Biden is in a mask and President Trump is not in a mask simply for the optics of it?
1: You know what? At a deeper level, it makes me sad that that's even like a topic of conversation, like right, right about like the great presidential debates of centuries past or decades past. And it's been like a I don't know for us, like, can you imagine what are the odds one put <laughs> a mask and one doesn't like it's almost like we we're trying to predict the next episode of the bachelor. Like it feels that level of drama and theater. Like, Ooh, what's gonna, which again, I guess maybe that's our reality. It just, I don't know if it makes me old. I'm just, I'm a little tired of that, but yeah, to your, to your question, which is a valid one. uh, I think it's likely (laughs) to be honest. Yes.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure it's going to be cable news. Just going, just analyzing every little move with the mask. Of course. Uh, from here on out, the presidential uh, campaign is in full swing now that uh, the vice presidential uh, Kamala Harris has been chosen by Joe Biden. We had some uh, uh, birther stuff, post office stuff, all sorts of craziness that I'm sure we'll be getting into between now and the election. Well, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by Dr. Josh Moody. He is the senior pastor of College Church in Wheaton. You might have seen the picture of their church all over the news this week as the uh, the storm on Monday uh, toppled their steeple. So, Dr. Moody is going to join us not only to give us an update, but more importantly, how do you pastor a church through a pandemic, through a storm? Uh, and and what are what is kind of his perspective right now on what's going on at College Church and the larger church as a whole? Going to be joined by Dr. Josh Moody next here on the Common Good AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. And we are really excited to be joined uh, this segment by Dr. Josh Moody. Uh, Josh is the senior pastor of College Church in Wheaton. He's also the president and founder of The God-Centered Life, which you can find at uh, GodCenteredLife.org. Dr. Moody, thanks so much for joining us today. Brian, it's a real uh, privilege to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, we really appreciate it. And uh, we wanted to start by just saying, I'm sure whether people put it together, uh, just about everybody in the Chicagoland has seen a picture of your church, College Church. The other day, uh, a small tornado went through basically downtown Wheaton and uh, knocked over your steeple. It was all over the news. I'm just curious, how has your life been for the last week and how is your
2: church doing? Well, we have a very good team. And so there are lots of other people involved with some of the practicalities around that sort of thing related to insurance and cleaning up the mess and all that kind of thing. So um, it, it really, whenever there's a stress in an organization's life, it reveals the strengths or weaknesses of mm. the organization. And mm. uh, we have an amazing team and just they've done an extraordinary job. And I think it's been, you know, the church, um, it's, it's, uh, it's not, of course, it's the building, not the church. Um, right. And the, right. the church is is fine, and I think they uh, really pulled together. And in some ways, they had a great time. You know, Tuesday morning there were I don't know how many men out there with their chainsaws cutting down trees. I, I think they had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I've seen a lot
1: of people joking at this point about like playing twenty twenty bingo. Like, what else is going to even possibly happen this year? And you're someone who is a a writer and a speaker and an academic, but you're also a practitioner. You're a pastor. What has it been like leading and shepherding and navigating the last five or so months for you?
2: Yeah, well, when something happens, like happened this week, and then over the five or six months, I think it's very important that we, as leaders, um, work on our own and the people's um, thinking and feeling uh, Hmm. through bringing biblical perspective in as soon as possible, and then as frequently as feasible because all our minds tend to drift to the negative or the um, less productive. Right. And so we need to set off on the right track by now, you know, guys, this is what happened and this is who God is and this is his plan and, and this is what we're going to do. And so let's, let's do it. And so you, and then you have to keep on bringing people back on it because vision and thinking drifts all the time. People, mm-hmm. Different personalities, different psychologies, different emotional bandwidths. Um, but I think a, a leader's task in, in these situations is to provide meaning and hope. Uh, obviously, we're Christians, and so a Christian leader provides meaning and hope from from the scriptures, so that uh, God's people get a sense of the Father's heart in any difficult situation, and then we can all start to do our job. You know. Mm-hmm. Josh, I'm
0: curious, what are some specific scriptures you've been sharing with your team and with your church over the last weekend, over the last five months?
2: Yeah, I mean, over the last five months, um, we were in Acts um, on Sunday uh, when we were preaching passage. And I stayed there because the passages we were looking at Acts were all to do with um, the church thriving in the midst of difficulty. And I Mm. thought that's a great theme for us right now. Yeah. And so we stayed there. Uh, when I came, I just been a, away on a little bit of vacation. I came back. We've actually uh, been in Habakkuk, which is, you know, you have to find where that is in the old Testament. It's like, you know, <laughs> I look back from the end of the old Testament and figure out how you're going to pronounce it, whether you pronounce it the British way or the American way. But um, <laughs> the book is, is really good because Habakkuk is saying, God, uh, why are you doing this? Where is your justice? And he moves mm. from um, great confusion and despair to, by the end of the book, extraordinary joy because his joy is in God. And therefore, mm. whatever else is going on around us, that, that can never be taken away from God's people. And so we've been doing Habakkuk. Um, for, this, uh, for this week, um, You know, my message was, um, this is the building. It's not the church. And hmm. Jesus has a promise for the church. And the promise is, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so um, we have that confidence. Hmm. That's really good. It's interesting doing this show because
1: we've been reading from a lot of different pastors and perspectives. And some are saying this is this is going to be the greatest thing to happen to the church in a millennia. And others are saying this is this is just horrific and we're never going to recover from this. And, you know, everything in between. I'm I'm wondering what have been some of the the moments that have surprised you or maybe the silver linings, the things that you've seen, like in your local church context, What, what are the things that really encourage you about what you're seeing either at college church or just the church in general?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I suppose on that spectrum of things, I think we tend to run to extremes, and Mm. balance is what we always need. So the the biggest answer to that question is we don't know the future. Right. You know, uh, James teaches us that. Uh, Only God knows. Uh, We can look back in the past and see how events like this have not um, totally changed the nature of the church. Of course not. I mean, 1917, 1918, flu bat- pandemic did not completely alter the nature of the church. Um, right. You can read up on the Puritans doing, uh, dealing with plague in London and uh, other places. Um, terrible times, but it didn't completely change the nature of the church. But on the other hand, it did have, of course, an impact uh, on our on our mentality, our psychology, our feelings, our thoughts. And so, yeah, balance. I, I think some of the... You say the encouraging things. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that uh, there are moments when we pull together. Um, and I was quite encouraged in the early days. You know, everyone was saying we're in this together. Uh, I think what's been discouraging more recently is the division around interpretation of mm-hmm. what's happening within the Christian community and division about how to respond to it. And so I think that's made life more complicated for people like me who who are wanting to say, let's stay together, let's stay united. Uh, Yeah, this has been hard, and it will continue to be hard for some time, Um, but uh, let's stay the course, and uh, the future is bright always for God's people. And um, so, yeah, I think there are some encouraging things. And I think there've been some difficulties recently as some, some of the whole issues become politicized. Right, um, right. So, yeah.
0: And jumping off that, I'm curious, what would you say for pastors, for churches? What are some good um, uh, strategies might be the right word to kind of keep us unified, keep us away from being politicized. How are you going about trying to really um,
2: search for unity right now? Well, I think, you know, the Bible teaches us about that. Mm-hmm. Ephesians chapter four Um, Paul teaches that uh, unity comes about as the um, word teaching gifts in the church are used and God's people speak the truth in love to each other. And then unity um, unity is created by Jesus, not by us, but unity is furthered by the exercise of a biblical ministry in the church to bring people back into line with the way that God thinks. And the more we do that, the more we speak the truth in love with each other, then the body grows. And uh, so I think that the fundamental and most important strategy is to stop being um, blown all over the place by every single little blog out there of someone's opinion about something. Hmm. And put down reading all those different viewpoints of all the celebrity teachers out there, and instead crack open the Bible read what the scriptures say and bring your mind back into line with what Jesus thinks. And then, and then we get more and more united. Mm, that's a great word. Dr.
0: Josh Moody, senior pastor of college church in Wheaton, also the president and founder of the God centered life. You can find that at godcenteredlife.org dot uh, org. We're going to need to have you back on again. That was such a good word, especially as we head towards an election. Dr. Moody, thank you so much for
2: joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed it. It's It's our pleasure. pleasure.
0: Our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Friday afternoon. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show there. We post articles, also interviews that we have done. You can also find old interviews at 1160hope.com and also on our podcast. Get our podcast wherever it is you get podcast. And uh, even if you just missed the interview we just did with Dr. Moody from College Church uh, in Wheaton, you could go back and listen to that. Well, at com, it says this under their leadership section preserving our body and bodies for worship. Has online worship acclimated us to our screens or can we get physical again? That's the article here by Hannah King. What is going on with this article? Ian?
1: Well, I thought it's pretty wild that their uh, subheading there is actually the new sermon series at Brian's Church. Can we get physical again? So I think I think they owe you. It's a
0: redo. Is that I what go, it is? I go yearly? Oh, on that
1: okay. one. <laughs> I got you. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a topic that you and I have tackled a number of different ways, and I think it's still really an important one. You know, when we had Justin Gill on, he did a wonderful job talking about a theology of the body. Uh, my buddy Chris Lash also has done pretty extensive work in kind of researching and not you know a lot of times the the topic is really it, it's it exists at the 30,000 foot level like gather or not gather oh i miss mm-hmm. people versus no we need to be safe i think there's a lot more under the surface about uh incarnational ministry about embodiment and fleshment and all that kind of stuff is is super interesting so i i really like this article i think Christine today did a really good job with this one it's written by Hannah King let me just read a little bit how she begins so, last summer, I baptized my friend's daughter. Though small and wiggly, the baptism uh, remained calm in the arms of her father, and as I gently poured water over her head, her godparents and older brother crowded around the font. Another priest held the liturgy for me as I prayed and blessed this newest member of the church. In my Anglican tradition, the congregation participates in this blessing and vows to help raise the newly baptized as a member of God's family. That morning, we proclaimed, We receive you into the fellowship of the church. Confess the faith of Christ crucified, proclaim his resurrection, and share with us in the royal priesthood of all his people. And as I heard the voices beside, behind, and before me, I was struck by how many bodies necessarily participate in the baptism of one person. The rite of baptism is corporal and communal. It is the initiation of a physical body, human being, into the social and spiritual body of Christ, the church. That's a great Definition of baptism, by the way. Yep. Baptism signifies the nature and shape of the whole Christian life. To follow Jesus is to be bodily assumed into his body, First Corinthians 12. As Christians, we submit our individual bodies to God as instruments of righteousness, Romans 6. We humbly offer our individual strengths to other members of God's family, for we are members of one another, Romans 12. Corporate worship demonstrates this reality weekly. We gather as bodies, presenting our whole selves To God in praise and thanksgiving. We sing and lift our hands. We kneel to confess and pray. We take the bread in our hands and we eat. But we also gather as a body of bodies, embedding our individual faith within a larger corporate reality. Christianity is never merely personal and private, but interpersonal and familial. That is a great Mm -hmm. sentence. Our communion with God is the fellowship of a family. The pandemic has obscured these realities from our view. Foregoing public worship forced necessary isolation as an expression of love for neighbor, but as time goes on, our acclimation to digital connection, or in some cases, no connection with the gathered church, risks our forgetting who we are. Streaming or podcasting church services seduces us into believing we are souls on a stick, our worship merely a matter of downloading Christian content. We lose touch, pun intended, with our bodily participation in worship as we quote, Catch church on our headphones or while driving or while folding laundry on the sofa. Such individualized on demand worship also puts us in danger of forgetting the larger body of worship, the church. We don't see the other members of our congregation or hear their voices when we sing. We aren't confronted with their tears or reminded of their particular struggles due to the widespread availability of stream services. We easily, quote, church hop over to a different congregation, Zoom worship or skip worship altogether, exchanging it for other Christian media consumption. And then kind of goes on to describe that this actually isn't a new reality for us, but it's certainly I think it's new in its universality, how it's sort of what we're all experiencing. And I'll, I'll stop right there. Our churches are handling this a little differently, actually, and I'd love to know, how do you respond to what I've read so far, and, and how do you feel like your church has navigated it?
0: Uh, yeah, I think she is right on. I think there is this feel of, um, now that it's been like five months, losing that uh, that regular connection on a weekly basis, and kind of that... Uh, um, it's like that grounding, right? Like we, we gather together and then we go off and we're in small groups and we're in other groups and we do other things on our own. Uh, but, but there's that, uh, seeing of one another and singing together and taking communion together. There's that, there's that communal aspect that is hard to replicate, whether it be online or in other ways. Uh, and so how are we doing it as a church? I think, uh, it, quite frankly has depended on the week it's um you know we're trying to give our people as many opportunities to still gather virtually or in smaller groups um but but the frustration is you know obviously not everyone's going to take you up on that and right. it, and it sometimes lacks what what the larger sunday morning gathering can hold so yeah uh, I, I think it has certainly had its frustrations it's had its victories but uh i do think this uh I personally agree with her that that the online experience, uh, while a real blessing right now in the situation we find ourselves in, is not a uh, a great replacement. It doesn't mat- match up to all of us being together, and I think we're all feeling that.
1: Yeah, let me let me just read a little more because it's it's so much better than any thought I have in my head right now. She says, this is not new. In 2000, Rodney Clapp wrote prophetically in his book, Border Crossings, about what he called the, quote, double disembodiment of modern Christianity, saying, disciples are separated from the social body of the church and their faith as belief is separated from their own physical bodies and the social material world they inhabit. Corporate worship is subordinated to individual worship made an adjunct or ancillary practice of the worship private persons undertake on their own. Such worship and spirituality is, of course, eminently agreeable to capitalism's ethos, which favors the endless multiplication of individual choice. Woo, Woo, that'll preach. All right, I got to keep going. American Christianity has been detrimentally influenced by consumerism. Capitalism prizes the individual and teaches us to engage everything, including the church, through the lens of customer satisfaction. This makes it hard for us to embrace the church as a family to which we belong, to whom we have a responsibility. Our forced separation in the pandemic is a disembodiment that none of us has chosen, but it has created the conditions that exacerbate consumerism's impact on the church. Our physical dispersion and increased reliance on privatized, digitized worship reinforces the lie that we are anonymous consumers of Christian content rather than interdependent members of a Christian community. This lie disembodies our worship and dismembers our fellowship. And then she says, what's the solution? While the pandemic rages online, worship remains a necessity, but we can discern the body even as we remain apart physically. Do you want to briefly fly over those solutions? I don't want to leave people on a despondent note.
0: Yeah, she says, first, as much as you can, engage our bodies in worship. Sing along in your living room, mm-hmm. which I, I was I almost said it before. I find myself not doing that, but she's like do what you would do in the service. Do it in your living room as much as possible. Uh, bodily worship can also help engage your children. Second, creatively remember the social body with which we worship and to which we belong. Since said some churches are incorporating videos or prayer requests from members into their service. Uh, a few families have started watching in smaller groups, virtual coffee hours, do things that can help help uh, replicate what Uh, what we would do when we would gather together. And third, she said, we can pray that God will use the pandemic to, quote, heal our double disembodiment. Hmm. Social distancing and quarantine have already led to a resurgence of appreciation for embodied connection. What we once took for granted, we now cherish and long for. Perhaps this season of isolation and social recession will lead to renewal in the church as well. She says, we can pray that our loneliness will reveal our need for true belonging. So so, there's a lot there. She's really good at writing. She's great.
1: Hannah King. Yes, really Uh, good.
0: Really well written called Preserving Our Body and Bodies for Worship at Christianity Today. You can find that up at our uh, Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, uh, an article also out of Christianity Today, Who Are the Most Generous? Not Who You'd Expect. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simkins. my name is Brian Fromm. We are glad to have you joining us today. Uh, Again, find us on Facebook, on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, You could also find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Spend some time this weekend catching up on the podcast, and we do appreciate all of you Uh, who do uh, listen via podcast. So uh, also at Christianity Today, and we just talked about an article from Christianity Today, but another one here by John Lee uh, around something that we talk about often, generosity and giving. And he says this, who are the most generous, not who you'd expect. The secret to becoming a cheerful giver is to remember whom we are giving to. So uh, let me read a little bit of this. We just got through a campaign with uh, Christians Against Poverty. We talked the last couple of days, a lot about generosity and a lot about giving. And I found this article to be interesting in light of those conversations. Here's what we read. Uh, Where in the U S are people the most generous based on stereotypes. One might be tempted to think of the South because of its hospitality culture or the West coast with its activist streak, or perhaps the Northeast because of quote old money. However, According to the study by Barna Group in 2019, the three most charitable cities in America all were in one state. They were in the state of Idaho. Hmm. Uh, Christians in these cities give an on average $17,977 to charity annually. Surprisingly, Las Vegas, often called Sin City, comes in second. Uh, America's largest cities do not even make it onto the list of the top 50 most charitable cities in the U.S. That means that Christians on average in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Phoenix, and Philly give less than $3,300 a year. Uh, In another study, Barna found that age makes a significant difference in giving. 84% of millennials report to giving less than $50 to charity per year, even though charitable giving ranks high on their priorities. The most generous generation is in in the $500 to $2,500 range is Gen X. And the most generous generation, over 25,000, uh, 2,500, is comprised of those older than baby boomers. It'd be easy to blame our materially obsessed culture, but Christians fare no better when it comes to giving. A couple more stats. According to a nonprofit source, only 5% of church members give regularly. Households that make more than 75,000 are the least charitable. Nationwide, Christians today give 2.5% of their income. During the Great Depression, that number was. Three point three percent. So they're going to get into some giving theology and this, but uh, in lots of stats there, and we've heard some of these before. Uh, but which one of those
1: stats stands out to you? Uh, Idaho, Idaho. Me too. That was, interesting. <laughs> it, that was it's, interesting. I don't. It's not new information to me, at least that you know. Typically, the more money someone makes, the less generous they are percentage-wise, and uh, it does kind of go after the myth that I think a lot of us tell ourselves. I can't be generous now, but once I'm making this much, then I'll be generous. Well, statistically that's not true actually. So we, we make the, it's kind of like, this is probably a misappropriation of the verse, but you know, when you talk about uh, those who can be entrusted with a little, will be entrusted with much, right. But those who aren't faithful with little, not going to be faithful with much, this idea that like, I'm not generous now, but once I'm a billionaire, then, then I'll probably all of a sudden develop magically this, this heart of generosity. I think it's, for a lot of us, we think of it like it's just a switch that we flip, rather than like a muscle that we have to grow. You know, and that's not to say that there aren't times when, and I'm sure you encounter them too, Brian, where someone they, they come to your church at least pre-pandemic, and like the bottom has just dropped out, and there everything's unraveling, and right right now what they need is for the church to care for that person. Like I right. I wouldn't say to that person living in their car, like, well, you should probably start tithing. Um, because that's what we're all commanded to do. I, would, you know, I think that, that can certainly – people have abused, I think, that, that notion numerous times and probably ripped off a lot of people that uh, actually needed the church to care for them. But, yeah, it does seem like across the board, and not even just in the West, typically the more you make, the less generous you actually are. All right, so let me ask you this. As somebody who's preached on generosity a
0: lot, yep. preached on money a lot, um, if you – Somebody was bringing you in or you had your church and they said you have one week to try to preach on generosity. You have you have one Sunday. What is going to be your go to message and passage if you've only got one shot
1: at it? Oh, I actually I mean, I read it yesterday or the day before the uh, that first Timothy six passage. And I won't read it again because I guess I just read it yesterday. Was that yesterday the day before? It doesn't matter. But it's essentially Paul writing to Timothy and he's saying, hey, command those who are rich in this present world. And I would usually pause and say, that's us, by the way. Statistically speaking, mm-hmm. you know, it's easy for us to think, yeah, but my car sometimes gives me trouble or sometimes my AC goes out. You're like, the very fact that you have those things globally puts you in the wealthy category. It's just such – it's First Timothy 6, 17 through 19, I believe. And it just – it packs such a punch. If I had to choose one passage because he talks about don't be arrogant and put your hope in wealth. So he's saying – so often our hope migrates from Jesus to possessions. He's like, don't do that. Wealth is uncertain, which a lot of us know. And then verse 18, he says like, command them to do good and be rich in good deeds. He's not suggesting it. Paul's saying, Hey, this is like a central part of, of being the church. Teach them to be, you know, generous and willing to share. And then he kind of explains why he says, because when they do that, they'll take hold of the life that is truly life. I'll, I'll often say, and I probably stole it from Andy Stanley or somebody who said, we don't, first want something from you want something for you like generosity is actually a much better way to live your life that's what we we want you to experience the joy of generosity not like hey we got a building campaign and we need some dollars it's not a guilt thing it's you know when jesus says where your treasure is there your heart will be he's just really saying do you want to actually know what's going on with your heart like watch what you spend your money on that'll show you i mean you might say that you care about these things online or in front of people but you know, the paper trail doesn't really lie. Like, what do you really care about? Jesus says, well, follow the money. You know, it's sort of like the indicator light in your dashboard. It'll let you know that there's money is like the, the oil light, you know, and it's not letting you know there's a light problem in the car. It's letting you know there's an oil problem, but light, money often kind of has this way of sort of pointing to us what's, uh, what's really valuable to us. But I am assuming that you have also thought about this and asked me that question so that I would ask you that question.
0: No, not at all. Actually, I th- I thought about it, and uh, but I I will take it. Uh, I I think um, I would go, and they actually do this later in this article and talk about when Paul talks to the Macedonian church, and and when he talks about how they just begged for the opportunity to give because they realized that it was more blessed to give to the than to receive, and that whole concept of it being more blessed to give than to receive, uh, that whole concept of there is something when, when there's a benefit for us. We, we like to think that we always do things altruistically, but when there's benefit for us, that people become like, okay, I'll think about this some more. And uh, that concept that biblically, it's so backwards than what our culture tells us, uh, that, that there's this blessing you receive. You talked about this joy. You find joy when right. we give. And I think that that comes... Uh, with generosity, and and it's hard in our culture, man. It's just hard to get that. And um, I'm never surprised by these statistics. I'm never surprised because I know the struggle in my own life. When my wife and I sit down and we talk about giving and giving money away, it's like ah, it's like we don't have that much money. I don't want to give it away. Mm. As opposed to going, where can I give more and be right. and be blessed? And right. and it becomes difficult. And so it's probably where I'd go. Uh, Let me wrap up this article by John Lee. He says this. We're in the midst of a pandemic and protest. The church has an opportunity to show the generosity of God to a world that only knows the cynicism of giving and receiving on account of the cruel weight of mammon that reduces people to dollars, cents and pawns. Mm -hmm. To succeed, the church will have to relearn the vertical dimension of giving to God. The proof will be giving without taking credit, without the thought of gain and without a spirit of control. When the church gives as freely as it is received, pandemics and protest can become portals into a new world where grace is not just preached, but is seen, touched, and loved. That's John Lee uh, at Christianity Today. You can find that article on our Facebook page, uh, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to discuss a little bit of the politics of Kamala Harris. And I'm curious... Uh, what that should do to uh, for us Christians as we consider who to vote for. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the politics of Kamala Harris, and then John Perrine is going to join us to talk about the Burning Word podcast. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Friday afternoon. Ian, I'm wondering, uh, ask you this every Friday, any big plans in the Simpkins house for this what looks to be a beautiful weekend coming up?
1: What do I tell you every Friday, Brian?
0: That you do not, but I'm always like (laughs) holding out hope, just holding out hope. Like this is the weekend you guys are doing something spectacular.
1: I mean, you know what? Time with my family is spectacular enough for me, and I'm just happy to be in their presence. Well, somebody somebody, record that and send that to Ian's family. <laughs> Please do. I'm going to make it my ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> Every time your wife calls, it just says that. <laughs> that
0: would be funny. Well, we hope you all have a, a nice weekend planned ahead of you. It does look like the weather's going to be beautiful. This is kind of the beautiful time of year. And, uh, school is starting right around the corner. I tell you, I don't think I told you this. It looks like, uh, my daughter's high school, which is supposed to start on Monday. they have they've now moved the first three weeks to be fully remote and it has every feeling like they're going to be remote for a long time. So, uh, yeah. things changed like, kind of with an overnight, uh, email. So we're, uh, we're ordering desks. We're doing all sorts of stuff to try to get the house ready, but, uh, big yeah. change coming, but school is about to start. Uh, all right. So we have an election coming up. Uh, You might have heard that. So Donald Trump and his vice president, Mike Pence, will be running against the challengers, Joe Biden, and his newly selected vice presidential candidate, Kamala Harris. And a lot of us, you know, if you're not just kind of like, I always vote for this or I always vote for that. uh, You know, people are trying to figure out what do I think of these people? Who is most worthy of my vote? Who do I want to vote with? And I was reading an article uh, about Kamala Harris. She's really the new one on the scene here. And, uh, you know, you know, I want to read to you uh, specifically her background on abortion. And we're going to jump into the deep end here. I want to know, how do you process this? Is this a non-negotiable for you? Or is it just added to the kind of the stew of it all? So let me read this to you. It says, Democratic vice presidential selection Kamala Harris has a, quote, 0% pro-life voting record And is the, quote, most pro-abortion of pro-abortion politicians Joe Biden could have chosen, according to National Right to Life. Biden, the presumptive Democratic nominee, announced Harris as his running mate Tuesday, calling her a fearless fighter for the little guy and one of the country's finest public servants. But the National Right to Life says that Harris is the, quote, poster child for the extreme pro-abortion position of the Democratic Party. Here's some of their notes, said she opposed the Hyde Amendment and supports taxpayer funding. She opposed legislation that would require that a baby born alive during an abortion must be afforded the same degree that would apply to any other child, opposed a bill that would prohibit abortion when the unborn child can feel pain. That came from National Right to Life. Uh, Last year in a debate, Harris also pledged as president to use the Justice Department to block state level pro Life laws. And so the National Right to Life Organization is obviously pushing back uh, very hard. Harris had a 100% pro choice rating in 2017, 18, and 19 uh, from Pro Choice America. And then prior to that, she was the Attorney General uh, to California. Before getting your opinion, Carol Tobias, President of National Right to Life, said Senator Harris supports a policy of abortion on demand at any time, anywhere. And under any circumstances, sadly, both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris see the lives of precious unborn babies as expendable. Joe Biden could not have picked a more extreme pro-abortion running mate. So we're learning about Kamala Harris. And, you know, I'm wondering, uh, again, not asking who you're going to vote for, but asking, what do you do with this information? Is it is it does this weigh heavier than most for you or is it just part of the conversation as you try to make a choice? What do you do with this kind of information?
1: Oh man, that's a that's a really tough question. I mean the the stuff that you just read is is honestly that weighs very heavily, and it's stuff that I I knew a bit of going into it. I'm obviously reading up a whole lot more now after her selection. Mm-hmm. I think uh, part of what makes it so difficult is, and again, you know, I know that we're reading from Christian Post and Christian headlines, so there certainly are perspectives that are understandable. You know, people are coming from their own their own uh, convictions and their own perspectives. Mm-hmm. You and I have covered the, the conversation of abortion and women's rights and pro-life, pro-choice a number of times on the show. And I feel like y- you and I squirm a little bit every time, to be honest. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. But I mean, abortion in general, it breaks my heart for numerous love, for numerous reasons, you know, for, for the baby, for the mom, for our culture, for how it seems to be dividing us, how it seems to, you know, like even the history of how that became... The quintessential single issue, you know, for those in the uh, the right leaning evangelical camp. It wasn't always that way, but it seems like you know it's made it impossible for us to have conversations around. But it it is something that has weighed heavily on my heart since I was a kid. You know, my mom was was very very active in Metro Detroit. Was the president of the Right to Life Choices building, you know, a couple miles from our house. So this has been something that uh, I've sort of. I feel like I've been trying to wait in the deep end for most of my life. And even with all that exposure and experience, I still feel like it's a lot to kind of wrap my brain around and it's a lot to really speak intelligently to. I don't feel like I've ever really succeeded in that area, to be honest. And uh, it's always a bit of a struggle, but I, yeah, I'd love to know how, how you feel about it.
0: Yeah. You know, this has always been the number one issue for me and it probably continues to be Uh, But also wanting to be and so for that way, it's it's disheartening to have a vice presidential choice who is this far what I would call extreme. Um, Yeah. And so that's disheartening and would, quite frankly, make it hard for me to vote for them. There are other policies that we have to be honest about that that things about poverty and other things uh, that build into a culture of abortion. We see them tied together. And so I think. If this is your number one issue, I do think that it is incumbent upon you uh, to be a little more nuanced to go, okay, but, but which of the, and I'm not suggesting which one it is, but which one of the parties helps create a culture where people can bring a baby into the world or may not feel the need, but also who's looking to make abortion more easy. And it becomes a very, not even a nuanced discussion, but it's a complicated discussion. But to answer your question, uh, This is one of the reasons I have a really hard time saying that I could vote for somebody who believes these things. And then I feel like there's other reasons that I have a really hard time feeling that I like I could vote for the other side. And it again highlights something we talked about uh, yesterday, the day before, kind of the nomadic nature. I believe that a lot of us feel with our politicians right now. They feel very extreme on both sides. And I don't know how you feel, man, but this is yet another one where I go, I, I feel like I can't vote for either of them. And and for this reason, the abortion one makes it makes it really hard for me to even consider voting for Biden and Harris. And there's other ones with we'll get into someday with Trump and Pence that make it make me feel difficult to do. And and it, again, it adds to the nomadic nature. And I think that I, I don't know how you feel, but I feel like most Christians that I talk to kind of feel that way right now.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's interesting, too, because. You know, we talk a lot about echo chambers and confirmation bias. This this does feel like the one that Christians in particular struggle most to, like, give space to the person who disagrees with them. Like, this feels certainly in the top five of the most intense uh, unwillingness to really hear the opposing argument, even from fellow Christians, you know, like, I, to the point where... You know, people have said I don't. I don't even know how in a this is, and people have been saying this for you know decades. Yeah. how how in good conscience could a, a Christ follower ever vote Democrat? Mm-hmm. You know, that's only going to be further exacerbated. I think you know by this election, which goes to show that you know we've been saying for a long time, even before this election, that this is going to be some of the most heated seasons of uh, of at least my adulthood, and I think uh, I think probably yours as well. Is there is
0: it called the And campaign? Am I thinking about that that tries to wade into some of these questions uh, on both sides? I believe it's the And campaign. You can look them up uh, and kind of help further these conversations about how we decide between uh, uh, along these issues. Uh, But, yeah, a, a complicated one. And yet another reason, like we said, that a lot of us feel somewhat without representation, somewhat nomadic. And we'd love to hear if you feel the same way. You could do that at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next for the next two segments, we're excited to be joined uh, by John Perrine. He is uh, he leads he he has a podcast called The Burning Word Podcast that we're going to talk about next here on the Common Good AM eleven sixty Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us on this Friday afternoon. Uh, as much as Ian and I like to talk to each other, what we always tell you is we enjoy the most having uh, interesting guests onto the show. And with that in mind, we're excited to welcome to the show right now, John Perine. John, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I think
3: as good as you can in a coronavirus world. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> it always feels like it needs that caveat. You got to qualify it. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. John,
0: why don't you introduce yourself uh, to our audience?
3: Yeah. So I'm actually a pastor from the Chicagoland area. I've uh, worked with Willow Creek and I actually worked with the Anglican Church in Chicagoland, but I'm over in the UK now doing some doctoral work. But as I've gone to do doctoral work, I've just had this pastoral passion uh, to try mm-hmm. to put together this project that I've called The Burning Word. And it really is a podcast, but it's more than a podcast. It's it's really an attempt to try to resource the church with an invitation to return to the Bible and to find new resources to encounter God in the Bible.
1: I love that, man. And you, you're probably aware Brian and I are both pastors first. So like for us, we often are kind of bringing our own experiences to this show and your very first episode was entitled, Why is Studying the Bible So Hard? I'd love to know why that title, why that topic, and what are maybe some key takeaways from that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you two have a lot to say about this as well, so I'd love to hear your thoughts. But I've just seen over and over again, people really do seem stuck. Uh, I was just sitting with some friends doing a sort of home church thing uh, as we were sitting together on a Sunday, and I was just amazed as we all talked about it. We all said, you know, we have the sense during the pandemic, the lockdown – That we all should really be in our Bibles, but for some reason, it's just hard to sit down to open up the Word of God and to even know where to Mm -hmm. begin. So as I've been sitting with that even on a more academic level, I've just been struck that I think there's a couple ways we've been set up poorly when it comes to Mm -hmm. our Bible and to our idea of a quiet time. And so the the first episode of my podcast is really trying to get into that, but uh, to just sort of put it bluntly, I think in my, at least in my experience, a lot of people I talk to, we kind of were given this magic formula. I'm curious if you guys have (laughs) seen or heard or encountered this. The formula kind of goes, if we just spend 15 minutes in the Bible, then Jesus is going to show up. And the best part about that formula is that sometimes it it happens, right? I love when it happens. It's the best thing in the world when you sit down, you open up to a passage, and God just speaks. But for so many of us, the struggle is that we've kind of done that formula over and over and over again, and it maybe worked one time, or maybe it works for a string of times, or maybe when we were in the book of John, you know, it was like really working for us. But then we go to explore the rest of our Bibles, and we just don't really know what's going on. <laughs> we don't understand why 15 minutes isn't paying off. And then, again, for just so many that I, I talk to and I pastor, the, the real danger is that we just start to kind of grow disillusioned and give up on our Bibles. So have you guys seen that at all? I mean, does that resonate in your pastoral settings and what you guys are even seeing and interacting with during coronavirus?
0: Yeah, you know, for me, no, my church is perfect. (laughs) For me, it is uh, both as a pastor and just as an individual. It's exactly what you said. Not only did I grow up with that, uh, you know, just have your quiet time and God will show up at that time. I've probably actually, I've probably actually, actually taught that as well, right? Like as a pastor or whatever. Totally get that. And it is that when, when, when you go day after day, maybe week after week going, I didn't really get anything. And that's, you know, I'm using air quotes for get anything out of this. It can become really easy for people to become disillusioned to go, I don't even know what to do with this whole Bible thing. And yeah, man, I totally get that. Um, it's a struggle. It is a struggle because then we have to be able to be honest and go up in front of people and go, hey, sometimes I open up my Bible and I close it and I go, I don't really know what I got out of that. Yeah, <laughs> and, right. And
3: totally. I'll admit that well. I, I mean, the the great news is that for so many of us uh, as pastors, as much as for laity, I mean, for any of us, the honesty that we can bring forward is that there actually are resources that always do seem to help. Right. I, I mean, the heart of this podcast mm-hmm. That I've been working on is that I really am just trying to create another resource. Uh, we just need resources. We need guides. We need people who can help us make sense of the Bible. We need pastors and scholars and thinkers who can help bring the Bible closer to home to our lives, which in, in some ways is really what you guys are doing here on the show. Just what I love about uh, the common good, and so for me, the the heartbeat is to just speak to those who have grown disillusioned, who have gotten burned out, and to just tell them the good news is they don't have to give up on their Bibles just yet. Um, as I as I've been sitting studying the Bible, sort of working through it on a number of levels, all the way from practical up to some of the academic stuff. For me, I, I think we've we've gotten a little off base in some of our sort of post enlightenment scientific method approach uh, i love the scholar michael bird just calls it the meat grinder approach <laughs> where uh, mm. we we kind of sit down and we think if we take our theology question and we grind through the text out on the other side is going to come a a nice sausage patty or maybe a burger of juicy theology you know that just really connects to our lives yeah. but instead what i've been seeing that really can seem to be most connective and most helpful is if we come back to the Bible as a book that was written in a specific social and cultural setting. So I've just really been seeing how when you open up that sort of historical cultural background to the Bible, it can really connect. Things can start humming, especially in the Old Testament, which mm-hmm. we feel that much more removed from. Um, wow. I've really been seeing some of the, the power of returning to the Bible as literature, So Mm. sitting in the Psalms as poetry, sitting in uh, the book of Proverbs as wisdom literature, asking what it means that the Gospels are Gospels, you know? Um, And then finally, my last one that uh, I'll just throw out there and would love your guys' thoughts on is I, I really do think there are some existential angst, particularly among my millennial generation, that. Uh, we sometimes have felt has not been given space or permission to be there when mm-hmm. we read the Bible. And instead I, right. I just want to invite people bring those existential angsty questions and let's let Christ give us purpose and meaning and direction to them. That's
1: really good. Man. So, so, remember- so that's
3: some of what I'm, I'm working through. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, m- I remember hearing Rich Velotus a couple of years ago, say something like if Jesus spent eight hours a day, every day for three years with his disciples, that would have been like 8,000 hours and who are we to think that like one hour on a Sunday will be like the key to unlocking, or you mm. know, in your case, 15 minutes in a, in a morning, like Jesus spent all that yeah. time and they still had major problems. You know, like there's something about what you're talking about, like taking a, a deep engagement approach rather than simply like, Hey, I read my 10 verses, which, you know, verse numbers weren't even there to begin with. Right. Like that's a whole other discussion. I don't like <laughs> right, know right. with, like, the minute, the minute or so that we have left in this segment, like what are some ways I don't want to give it all away because I want people to subscribe to your podcast. But what are, what are some ways for people to really get back to the Bible as drama?
3: Yeah, I think I think we need help. But I think the best part about our current moment is that there's never been more resources to get us back there. So, I mean, I really do think if if we only get an hour on Sunday with the sermon, the great thing is now people are listening to podcasts all the time. We are on social media all the time. Right. And so to find resources, it's just starting to become my heartbeat as a pastor. We've, we as pastors need to keep creating more resources for our people to engage more regularly with so that they can go deeper. Uh, but to really to get out there, to, to lean into the disillusionment and realize that, that God is actually still speaking and the word is burning, if you will, uh, if only you'll return to it to hear what it's Zero. saying.
0: With that other voice you're hearing is John Perrine. Uh, He is a pastor, but also we're talking to him about his new podcast, The Burning Word Podcast. And John, we're real excited you're going to stay with us for another segment as we continue to talk about uh, not just the importance of reading our Bible, but how do we do it? How do we grow that love? We're excited to have that conversation continue next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. (laughs) Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're excited to continue to be joined by John Perrine. Uh, he is he has a new podcast called The Burning Word Podcast. You can find out more at burningwordpodcast.com, also on Facebook at Burning Word podcast and you, we talked off air about the book of Job and some of the work you've done that before we jump specifically in the book of Job, I'm wondering, how'd you come up with the name, the burning word podcast? What is the significance of that?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. Well, you know, uh, to put a podcast out there, you've got to come up with something, right? So it's (laughs) immediately you're struck by the (laughs) dilemma. How will we bring this together? Uh, But for me, there's actually three images in the scriptures that have always kind of moved me. And I just had a a moment, almost an epiphany moment where I realized they were all connected. And that's uh, Moses encountering God in the burning bush, right? This beautiful, mysterious, wonderful bush that's aflame with a fire that won't go out where God speaks to Moses. You then have Jeremiah who talks even in his exhaustion and frustration about this word of God that's burning in his chest right that he just can't seem to shake even though he wants to get rid of it like he just can't help but speak this burning word out and then finally you have the disciples on the road to Emmaus and this was the one that just really moved me when i realized their response to hearing jesus open up the scriptures was they look at each other and say did not our hearts burn within us i mean mm. we just encountered the word of god you kind of see this beautiful thread from moses to jeremiah all the way to the disciples with Jesus that are meeting God in the opening of the scriptures. So, so that's kind of the heart of the podcast that, that we've sort of lost the fire, maybe for some of us who are a little discouraged, a little disillusioned. And we want to invite you to return to experience God in the word that is still burning for you today.
1: That's so good, man. I know that uh, with this study, you also partnered with your wife, Jenna, who's not only a mental health therapist, she's brilliant. She's been on the show before as well. And uh, I think a lot of people... Are are really resonating with Job right now? Job is sort of the quintessential archetypal type, type of guy of suffering, right? That, that's just yeah. associated with his name, intertwined. And I think a lot of people are feeling the weight of you know their own grief and suffering. I'm wondering, could you just walk us through a little bit about why Job and what what were maybe some of your takeaways?
3: Yeah, you know, the thing I'm struggling with with Job is it's such a big book, right? It's like we all sort of. Uh, we're drawn to Job. We want to learn about Job. But if again, I'm sort of leaning into the disillusionment, I got to say, 42 chapters is a lot to wade through to figure out what in the world <laughs> is going on, right? When Job right, is yeah. sitting and he's talking to friends. And next thing we know, this guy named Elihu shows up. And then all of a sudden the whirlwind speaks and we're, we're kind of sitting there in our 15 minute quiet time. And we're like, I think this, I think this is connecting. Like, I think. Did God give me any answers? No, I'm not really sure if God did give me any answers. I think he just asked Job a lot of questions. So I, I've just always been drawn to the book of Job. I've always been wanting to figure out what is going on in this book. And as I've been sitting with it, uh, something that's interesting about the study I've put together is I've been working with my wife, Jenna, who's a mental health counselor. And we've kind of seen that there are these eight stages of suffering Job walks through as a sort of model. Now, I'm not trying to be overly prescriptive. I don't think Job is trying to be overly prescriptive. But if you walk with Job's journey, he's going to start on the ash heap where he's just sitting in silence for seven whole days. And as a therapist, I was talking to my wife one night about it, and she was just like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> you know that, 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 That's got to mm-hmm. do something for us. We've got to sit with that a little more. Why does Job need to start with seven days of silence? But then when mm-hmm. you turn to Job 3... Job is going to first just bellow this lament. So lament's kind of in vogue right now, but there's something there that in our suffering and even in this pandemic, could we return to the word and work with Job through our own laments? But from there, he's then debating with the friends and he's kind of working through this court case setting where Job almost wants to put God on trial for the injustices of the suffering he's experiencing and again just pastorally with my wife as a therapist it feels uncomfortable in fact it makes job's friends really really uncomfortable but there's something really powerful there to to sit with and to ask ourselves you know if we were to if we were to really work through the frustrations the disappointments of this season the the ways we feel like the injustices are just overwhelming us. What would be the case we would present? Where maybe are there good pushbacks, rebuttals? Uh, what what appeal are we making to see if God shows up? Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I think I've blitzed through a couple of stages, but I'll pause to, to hear if any of that's resonating with you guys as uh, I'm setting up Job.
0: 100%. Oh, completely. Especially that sitting in silence, because I don't think, I, I almost said we don't do. I don't do that well. Yeah, man. this... <laughs> Uh, this, yeah, this silence. I, I appreciate all this work. Let's, I'll let you go through. Why don't you keep going through them? Cause they're really, these eight are really powerful. So I want to make sure you get through them.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, the high point of Job is his encounter with God, right? And, and so I think one of the, the exciting parts of having space in a podcast, as opposed to just trying to crank through all of this really quickly in a Sunday morning through a sermon, yeah. is that you, you just get to really slow down with this whirlwind encounter. And my, my hunch as I sit with it, I mean, it's, it's kind of a contested passage of what exactly is going on, but I think God's really inviting Job to look at creation differently. And mm-hmm. I, I just can't help but resonate again in this season when it just feels like our world has so much upheaval in it, just what it would mean for us to sit and listen to God take us on a tour of his creation through the whirlwind as God's kind of pointing out the stars to Job, he's, he's pointing out what's going on in the skies, he's then getting down with animals, he's examining behemoth and Leviathan. So yeah. I, I think if we can get there, if we can get to the moment where God meets us in the whirlwind, then the beauty of Job is that it ends, uh, stage seven is his confession, where he speaks back to God, he's finally ready to, to address the God who has questioned him and then finally job ends with this beautiful restoration which i think is the strongest most beautiful moment when jesus shows up in job that his children are brought back to him his his possessions are restored and while i think we can get really stuck on the literalness of it i think the bible's kind of pointing us towards this restoration direction of what mm-hmm. jesus is going to do for us in our suffering so yeah it really seems to me like there's this pretty Beautiful, immersive, and comprehensive journey. And my heart with the study in the podcast is I would love nothing more than for a small group to spend eight weeks going through Job, working through each of these stages that I outline Uh, on our website. We've got this really beautiful digital study you can download that's uh, perfectly set up for a small group. And each of these stages has exercises uh, like one is the lament, one is sort of preparing your case, another is listening to rebuttals. And then Finally, you can pray to meet God in the whirlwind and write your own confession and then uh, ask where Jesus is showing up in your suffering with restoration. So yeah, I I think there's something beautiful there.
1: I think that's great, man. I think the word that you keep using too is journey, right? You know, as pastors, we certainly Mm. feel the weight and pressure of like, oh, I got to fit all this truth into a 30-minute sermon right now. Right, of course. The patience that you have with being able to play the long game, I think is such an important, especially now, and I'd love to in the last, you know, 30 seconds or so that we have, what's sort of your hope and dream for this podcast going forward? I know that like you're a creative, but you're also a scholar and there's a lot of stuff that you're kind of working on and stirring on. And, like what, what's sort of your hope and dream for the maybe months and years to come?
3: Yeah, I'm excited to see the church keep exploring these different avenues of resourcing. You know, so I I think I'm just a small player throwing out another podcast (laughs) and another study. But (laughs) I'm excited that I I do think that even my heartbeat for my own generation of millennials who are just so disillusioned right now, disillusioned with the church, disillusioned with their Bibles, my heart would just be that they would hear an invitation to return to the word and they would see that it, it really is still speaking to them. Uh, and that these resources would be a help.
0: Man, that sounds great. I, I want to, everyone out there to check out the Burning Word podcast. You can go to burningwordpodcast.com on Facebook at Burning Word Podcast. John Perrine, thanks so much for joining us. This was really good. Yeah, we thanks, really guys. It.
3: Love being here. Thanks.
0: Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, hope for your life.
3: Rusty, the snowman was a jolly happy soul. Welcome back to The was Common Good, AM
0: 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're grateful for you joining us today. Uh, hoping that you have a good weekend planned in front of you. We've got one more segment to go before we close it up for the week. If you missed anything this week, uh, interviews we did like we just did with John Perrine or uh, Dr. Josh Moody earlier in the show. You can find those at our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. Go check them out over the weekend. Subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find them on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, Mike Frost, somebody that we uh, referenced often. You've called him Frosty, hence the music. Uh, Mike Frost, he, he writes uh, great stuff at his blog, Uh, This week wrote the religious life of Gen Z that just came out yesterday. I believe Uh, he does a lot of work like this. Ian, I know you're you're very, um, you know, Mike Frost very much uh, and his writings. I'm wondering
1: what did he write here about the religious life of Gen Z? Well, why don't I read it for you, Brian? He writes at the beginning of the 20th century, sociologist Max Weber prophesied that religion-less modernity would become unbearable for secular society. He predicted the emergence of what he called late modernity, a period in which people embraced a kind of polytheism, hybridizing their spirituality by welding together different beliefs and practices in an attempt to find enchantment in the midst of bland secularism. He might have been right. Deakin University recently published their Worldviews of Generation Z report based on research done with Australians aged 13 to 18. It probably is worth mentioning He's Australian. Uh, up mm-hmm. until its release, most social commentators have tended to assume that young people are largely apathetic when it comes to religion. But the Deacon researchers found that some of this had to do with how we've been asking teens about religion. When confronted with traditional surveys that ask them to identify themselves as Catholic Christians, Protestant Christians, Muslim, Hindu, etc., teens are plus The Deacon team found that these fixed ideas of religious identity are no longer applicable to young people. Instead. He can use contemporary theories of religion, uh, religious diversity, and ask teens about six different types of spirituality. This uh, worldly, indifferent, spiritual, not religious, seekers, nominally religious, religiously committed, their results looked like this. And then there's a graph there that is uh, super interesting. He says, far from being disinterested, the study found that young people negotiate their worldview identities in complex, critical, and caring ways that are far from ambivalent and that are characterized by hybridity and questioning. If you're wondering what hybridity looks like, read this quote by international model uh, Miranda Kerr as she describes her religious outlook. So I'll read this, and uh, then I'll get your reactions. Yeah. She said, I'm not Buddhist. I'm a Christian. I pray every day. I meditate every day, and I do yoga. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. And praying is something my grandmother taught me as well. To pray and be grateful to have gratitude is a big thing for me. I like to pray, and I like to meditate. Doing just three minutes of prayer and a minimum, at a minimum of five minutes meditation twice a day sets the tone like an arrow so that you're hitting your target. When I pray, I always thank Mother Nature for all the beauty in the world. It's about having an attitude of gratitude. And then I pray to Christ to say, thank you for this day and my family and my health. And now that I'm older, I've added, please illuminate me. Please open my heart chakra, open my aperture and uplift my consciousness so that I can be the best version of myself. I'll stop there. There's a lot more to go on, but what do you uh, what do you yeah. think so far about... Frost's findings. Yeah, I've never heard that word hybridity. I think
0: that's really interesting. And we hear that phrase a lot. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. Uh, And this gives a lot of context to it, right? She's praying to different um, uh, mother nature and to Christ and to others. And it becomes uh, kind of a a buffet, if you will. uh, I'm going to choose a little bit of this religion, a little bit of this religion, a little bit of this one. Uh, as opposed to, you know, we often hear teenagers or Gen Z are just, you know, not interested in spirituality at all. And his point is, no, they're interested. It just looks very different. And we've got to c- kind of understand this before we can go have this conversation. And I think the the end of it's very interesting that when her prayer, Miranda Kerr's prayer, uh, the end goal of it is uh so that I can be the best version of myself. Like that being the end goal here, I think is uh, is probably pretty telling and pretty interesting. Um, why, so, yeah, why, this why term you, why hybridity.
1: Why do you feel that?
0: Uh, a, 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 uh, and, and I'm saying I'm probably guilty of this often. There's kind of a self-centeredness to it that says, let me go to these gods to, to kind of make me the best I can be. Uh, when that's not really what we are taught necessarily in the scriptures. You don't and, think so? Uh,
1: what, what is unchristian about, are, about praying uh, okay. for, to be the best version of ourselves?
0: I'm not sure that's always the end goal, but you're right. We do uh, pray for, you know, make me, you know, more like Christ today or whatever else. But this concept of hybridity, I think, is essential to what Frost is talking about here. It's this uh, this hodgepodge, this buffet uh, of, of accepting this from here, and this from here, I think is something I, I think it is important because, again, so often when we read these articles, it's hey, Gen Z millennials, they're not interested in religion at all. And I don't think that's the case. They are they are just viewing it in a very different way. What do you do with this? What do you do with this concept of hybridity?
1: Uh, I think it's interesting what he talks about a little bit later. He says teens were generally very positive about different faith groups. 85% had a positive attitude toward Christians, 80% of Buddhists, 75% of Hindus, 74% toward Muslims, 83% of those who have no religion, so like a pretty maybe that's an Australian thing. I'm I'm really uh, I, I'd be curious to know what those numbers look like here. It goes on to say that teens affirm and were open to religious diversity. Ninety-one percent thought that having people of many different faiths made Australia better. Ninety percent thought that students should be allowed to wear religious clothes. Eighty-eight percent thought that all religious groups in Australia should be free to practice their religion the way they want. Like I wonder if there's maybe again we're asking young people, so maybe there's a uh, an idealism. That we sometimes don't see, you know, when people are in their 30s, 40s, and later. But I, I do find it interesting that there seems to be such positivity around. It's not just that hybridity is happening, but that there seems to be like a real receptivity, a positive posture towards these things, which I think makes for an interesting religious spiritual landscape.
0: Yeah. It's his very end where he talks about. Um, He says social commentators have surmised that the brutalizing effects of secularism, consumerism and capitalism would lead not only to a reflowering of religious interest, but also an era of religious competition and possibly war. It certainly looked like they might have been partially right, given the rise of Al Qaeda, ISIS, neo-Nazism and even Christian fundamentalism. But Gen Z might be bucking the trend their concerns about the way strongly held belief leads to intolerance and aggression shows how much they care about peaceful coexistence. As we saw earlier, teens have an overwhelmingly positive attitude towards Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, and Muslims. They don't want to be the. They just don't want to be one. Other studies show them to be deeply concerned about other things: climate change, systemic racism, and other. Uh, some religious leaders have expressed deep concern about the hardening, hardening secularism of Western culture. But the worldview of Gen Z reveals a very different challenge, one that Leslie Newbegin described this way. The result is not, as we once imagined, a secular society. It is a pagan society, and its paganism, having been born out of the rejection of Christianity, it is far more resistant to the gospel than the pre-Christian paganism with the cross-cultural missions have been familiar. Here, surely, is the most challenging missionary frontier of our time. And then Frost ends it this way. The religious life of Gen Z will require a complete game change to church as usual approaches to apologetics and evangelism. So that's his takeaway. Uh, What do you do with that takeaway? That's a a pretty bold statement that it's going to require a game change.
1: I don't know what that I mean, my guess is that he will propose something in a later writing. But the church as usual approach, we have seen in a lot of ways kind of stripped from us, not even really something that we strategically chose. And Frost has also, I think, been doing a great job of writing about, OK, so this is we're facing this new reality, you know, whether that's uh, dealing with a global pandemic or dealing with what house churches look like or digital content. And I think he does a really good job of continuing to provide possible alternatives for us to rethink the way that we go about what church big C and little C looks like. And I always I always look forward to his perspective
0: absolutely so you can find that on our facebook page the common good radio show we're thankful for dr josh moody and also john uh, john perine who joined us today if you missed either of those interviews you can find them on our podcast the common good radio show and uh we are into the weekend now Ian. i hope you have a great weekend with you and your family
1: thanks man you too
0: you can join us again on monday from four until six for ian simpkins my name is brian Fromm. you've been listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life